This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to UC Santa Barbara's Innovator Stories series. I'm John Greathouse. You can follow me on Twitter at John Greathouse. Tonight, our sponsor is Pay Junction. Founded in 2000, Pay Junction has been disrupting the payment processing industry by offering transparency and award-winning service. They offer an all-in-one payment platform, which is, uh, which is killer. I've used it uh, many times. It has never rejected my chip, um, which I'm very thankful for. Um, even more importantly, Pay Junction is hiring aggressively. Glassdoor voted them as one of the best companies in the U.S. to work at. So if you're interested in their technology as a customer, if you're doing payment processing of any type, either online or in a physical uh, retail location, you should uh, check them out. And if you're looking for a job, hang around after this interview. And after the interview, there'll be a little bit more information on what Pay Junction is all about. So today, I'm, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Matt Bean. Matt is an interesting combination. He's an entrepreneur, um, and he's also a professor. In addition to his role as a professor in UC Santa Barbara's technology management program, he is also an affiliate, a research affiliate with MIT's Institute for the Digital Economy. His field of study focuses on deviance in work involving machine intelligence, and specifically in the area of robotics. So Matt has done extensive field research. I like that he goes out into the field and really tries to figure out what's happening in the real world instead of just sitting um, in an office or a classroom. And he's looked at a number of different aspects of, of uh, the real world, including robotic surgery, robotic materials transport, and robotic telepresence, both in healthcare, excuse me, healthcare, elder care, um, and knowledge work. He has a great TED Talk. It came out in February of uh, 2019. Uh, it's well worth uh, the time to check it out. It's about nine and a half minutes. It's a very compelling um, TED Talk. It's approaching about two million views now. He received his PhD from MIT's Sloan School of Management from the Information Technologies Department. He's also an entrepreneur, as I mentioned. He took a two-year hiatus while he was earning his PhD at MIT, um, and he joined uh, Humatics, which we'll talk about. Uh, it was a full-stack IoT or Internet of Things startup. Matt was selected in 2012 as a human-robot interaction pioneer, and he's a regular contributor to a number of popular publications, including Wired, MIT's Technology Review, TechCrunch, and Forbes. Let's welcome Matt to our class. Good to see you. Good Thank you for coming. Thank you. You probably had the shortest commute of anyone I've ever spoken to. Uh, it was a brisk walk. <laughs> a brisk nice walk. Yeah. Some people fly from the East Coast. And, yeah, not um, difficult. Yeah. Not Thank difficult. you for taking the time. No. I know you're busy, and we're going to delve into some of the things you've been doing, um, and we're going to see just how busy you've been. So I, I, I like to start just talking a little bit about the Matt that's not on the stage, right? right. Matt as a young person. So when you were maybe in that junior, junior high age, um, what did you think your dream job would be? What did you think you were going to be doing now, like when you're sitting here? Oh boy, junior in high school. I was a bit of a chaotic mess at junior year <laughs> high school. I knew I was going to college. Mm -hmm. uh, before that, I was pretty convinced brain surgeon. That lasted until about eighth grade, ninth grade. Really? Yeah. Um, I kind of had a hint, maybe math major uh -huh. in undergrad, but what kind of job is that good for? Back then, right, right. I wasn't sure. So no, I was just headed to college. You just knew I'm going to go to college and I'll figure it out once I get there? Yep. What, did you come from an academic family or did you come from a, um, a not startup family? What, what was the family dynamic? Neither. So well, both my parents were uh, teachers. My dad okay. was... Educators. Uh, yeah. Which um, is going to fit right into your story, right? There's a, I, there's a, a nice theme yeah. to your story. 
Yeah, so um, my dad specialized in dealing with kids who, what did they call them at the time, emotionally disturbed. What do they call them now? Um, emotionally disturbed. Okay, <laughs> right. Um, I, no, I think I would have um, fit to that category. Uh, kids who got kicked out of school, mostly. Okay. So he helped found a school to help kids uh, find a way forward that traditional education He helped could. found a school? Yeah. So he's an entrepreneur. Uh, and that's entrepreneurial. Sure, yeah. Him and uh, five or six others, yeah. Creating who something for nothing. Who are also disinvited from standard public school teaching jobs. There you go. Themselves. Entrepreneurs uh, are often the rejects of the world. We have to anyway. go off and start um, something new. Uh, and my mom was also a teacher, uh, so that was sort of the lifestyle, right? We had summers completely oh, off nice, back in the day. Nice. Um, uh, Lots of road trips or... Uh, trips to the beach. I lived in a small town in Massachusetts okay. that where I could hop on my little bike and in oh, wow. eight or ten minutes be on the beach. So four or five days a week. That's Which you can do in Santa Barbara. So it's not no too wonder bad. you didn't. Uh, you ended up here. Yeah. So you, two teachers, uh, two educators in the family. You end up going to undergrad and majoring in philosophy. Right. What? Curious to know, did you start with that intention, and what did you no. think you were going to do with philosophy? And uh, this is informative to the students out there that are like, well, how am I going to use my degree? Oftentimes, it's, yeah. you, don't, you don't think you're using it, but you end up using it quite extensively. So that turns out to be true, and almost anything turns out to be true if you wait long enough. <laughs> so um, I started as a math major yep. uh, uh, with a psychopharmacology minor. What is that? Uh, so I, I had a professor I really liked who went and lived with indigenous cultures and took their drugs with them oh to study gosh. how they... That's a right? job? That was a pretty cool job, does it I pay thought. Well? That was, yeah, it does pay very well. Um, in fact, Johns Hopkins is just spinning up a lab no, to study I'm, just this I'm kind of joking. thing. I'm I think um, now we're finally realizing there's a lot of good yeah. knowledge there. Yeah. Um, so anyway... Um, after about a semester in undergrad, a buddy called me and said, hey, I want to take next year off and buy a small car and drive around the country and see all the national parks. Wow. Uh, and I said yes. So I thought I wasn't coming back. Right? I, I so you were a junior? This I was time? a freshman. Wow. Okay. I was, uh, so we said, let's take the summer and the first semester. We'll both go back to school, we thought, maybe. Um, Interesting. And so uh, I started to read a lot of philosophy on that trip. It was a sort of... He and I were very good friends. And what we were you reading? Aristotle, Plato, Hume, Kant, the oldie, yeah, crusty, yeah, kind yeah. of white dead dudes um, <laughs> philosophy. Dead dudes, yeah. um, and I really enjoyed it, and I realized that's a thing you're allowed to do in school, mm. and that's a job. Uh, so I figured I'd go back and study that. And at the same time, I was getting really into music, so that shows up if you look real close. Uh, you know, I minored in music, uh, and I intended to go back and make a living as a jazz guitarist. That was oh, basically wow. what I was thinking I was okay. going to do. Um, that didn't work out. Well, <laughs> so anyway, had, what did I think? On the way. What did I think I was doing with that degree? I was interrogating what it meant to be alive. What's the nature of reality? I, that right. was not about a job. That was right. like I was compelled to do that. Right. Um, and I thought I was going to try and make a living as a musician. So then I moved to Boston and tried to make that happen. So how long did the musician? experience last? A uh, year and three quarters. Wow, okay. I paid rent and ate garlic powder on pasta. <laughs> um, so <laughs> And probably made a lot of uh, And that things. same buddy then uh, gave me a call and said, hey, uh, you could substitute teach at this school I'm teaching at. Ah, okay. Uh, there's a math teacher job opening. Right, right. Uh, so you spent two so. years um, at that high school, right? Yep. Taught math. But, but uh, as I understand, you taught students with language disorders. So did that go back to what your dad had been doing to some extent? Or? Uh, no. The, the, that, uh, there's a high correlation between those issues and um, issues of emotional adjustment and so okay. on, mostly because of how kids with dyslexia are treated in school, right. not to do with anything yep. you know, biological. Um, 
And so I just was attracted to that population. You know, anybody who's an outcast or reject, uh, right. or somebody who's different. Uh, so, and it was a, you know, I was offered the job, and I figured, what the heck, I'll go do it. I was temping at an auto body shop, uh, processing invoices at the time. So it's wow. a better job. Wow. Um, so, so you, anyway. so you get there, you, you, get, you get the energy from the students. That's also, I have friends that teach special ed. That is a very demanding yes. career path. Yeah, a lot of what I know how to do now. Not all kidding aside, really? I, I learned how to do in the classroom there. Yeah, wow, that's for sure. fantastic. Yeah. Could you, is any specific example come to mind? Like what? And what will put you on the spot? Yeah, a kid named Mario. My first day walking in teaching yeah. uh, was it calculus, geometry, something like that. Um, uh, I started to go up to the board and do the lesson plan that I was handed, yeah. and so on. Like a teacher should. Uh, sure, and he stood up and he said, "F you, f all of you, and uh, we're going to talk about this now, and you're going to be a better teacher by the end of class." So Whoa. that's what happened. <laughs> wow. Um, he don't, was, don't do that. Yeah, he was an angry kid. Yeah. Really. So, so tell me about Mario at the end of the quarter, end of the semester. What was oh, he? He was, a, he was an absolute calculus ace. Not surprised. Ace. Uh, and uh, was a tough kid. Did, did, that, did that story have a good ending? Is he, did he end up kind of getting his act together? I was together just or? thinking of going and Googling him. I would say his last name, but I don't want to no. you know, add him. But um, I, I haven't in years checked up on him. But no, he, he was taking care of himself for sure. Mm, okay. Yeah. But for you, it was sort of trial by fire. You were a young teacher that didn't really have a lot of experience at that point. Correct. And you walked yeah. out of those two years with a lot of experience. Yep. So it, it's interesting that you, it, so the, I said earlier that I, I don't find it surprising that your parents were educators because your axis throughout your career has been consistent, even though your career has been very varied. Yep. And that's not an uncommon thing. Some, some students look at someone at a point in time and they wonder, well, it must have just been a straight line to that point. Well, it never is. <laughs> never is. But there can be themes and there can be commonalities. Yeah. And with you, it's, it's education, teaching, and learning for sure. So you left the high school gig um, and you started, you worked at the, the Forum Corporation and one of your roles was managing this globally dispersed workforce, which, which you guys termed ResNet. So I, you were there about three years. What were, the, what were the things that you pulled out of that that, in, that influenced your point of view regarding a couple of things? One, um, training a diverse, a diverse decentralized workforce. Right. Um, what, did you, what did you learn that was like the right way and the wrong way? And I'm sure technology was evolving and all these moving parts. Right. So the thing to know about that workforce is that these are seasoned professionals who have either semi-retired or are coming out of a leadership role in a oh. corporation at, say, DuPont, okay. uh, and want a second career. Uh, you know, they punched out, say, 50, uh, and can go deliver leadership training to a very senior executive team. Mm. So these are folks who think they know everything. Um, and to some degree, they really did. I had no business managing those people. Mm. And yet, I was responsible for their learning and so development. So how did you walk into that role? What was the... Well, I started processing their expense reports, and then I moved up to staffing them on work, and then, you know, I sort of right. built a rapport. Um, so somebody there was like, Matt's really smart, we should give him something more challenging. Uh, and you just kept taking on more and more responsibility? It was more me knocking on the door Good. Um, uh, and asking. Um, yep. Uh, because it was a busy place, yep. right? Uh, it was very chaotic, chaotic company in a good way. Yep. Um, so anyway, uh, what did I learn about learning is that um, you don't learn something unless you want to. Mm. So these folks were out, and they were the face. They were the brand of this company. If there was a training on management, leadership, sales, or service that this company was putting on, right. those were the people that were the touch point with the customer. And so if they, we wanted to steer that her, proverbial herd of cats, yep. it had, there had to be something in it for them. 
and it had to be clear and motivating. And so learning what a clear message was and how to invite in a diverse group of stakeholders who, yes, they were around the globe. So right. it's a lot of learning to write, actually. And these people uh, are twice your age at this point, right? Three you times. Know? Three times your Twice age. or three times, <laughs> yeah. Some younger, but mostly not. So I kind of cut you off, though. You said so that, that involved a lot of writing, so a lot of yep. through email or through some asynchronous communication. Newsletters. Right? Back in the day, yeah. uh, e-zines is a term. No oh, one in this room, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, no one will. I'm the only person in the room that's ever heard that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so that was, uh, that was a trial by fire in, in learning to communicate clearly in writing, which... Right. Um, and it was a new medium at that time. Right. You know, the internet, how are we going to do this? Yep. Yeah. Um, interesting. So you did about three years there. Um, and then I, I thought this was somewhat of an unusual step for someone who later became an academic. And you went into essentially sales and marketing. Um, I know that you also did other things there. but So you, you went to Roger Sports. You were a principal there, one of three principals. Um, and you obviously worked on engagements too, but it yep. sounds like your job involved a lot of selling the services of the yep. company. So how did you, did you go in there roaring with confidence? I mean, you were there eight years. Did you, did you feel like, yes, I know how to sell, or were you sort of put in that role? Uh, a bit of both. So uh -huh. I, my job was to train this group of 300 people, and I went out to find the best training in how to lead a group session in whatever. Mm -hmm. And I found this guy that I ended up working with. And they had the, t the, the sort of best-in-class thing. Uh, so I myself went there as a consumer. You're a customer, yeah. And then uh, said, oh, this is what I'm going to do with the rest of my life, mm. basically. Mm. Um, and so I told him, look, I want to apprentice with you. Um, how do you, how's this business run? Yeah, wow. And he said, sure. Um, how does it run? Well, if somebody calls three times, I figure they must want something. Nice. And that's literally what he said, and he kind of wasn't joking. Yep. So it I wasn't that hard to add value as a sales and marketing guy. I right. said, I think I can help with this problem. Right. 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 I'm going to create a spreadsheet of the people that call. I'm right. going to call them back. Right. Um, find out what they want. <laughs> um, so that then, well, we should get a website too. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, I've got a website. No, you don't. Uh, so then I got to do the website. Then I had done newsletters before. Let's have a newsletter. Mm -hmm. uh, it snowballed, in, and I was just this far ahead of the company the whole way. Yep, yep. So I mean, this, this, this makes a lot of sense to me that, you know, later we're going to talk about the startup you worked at. But you, you, I think more like your dad than maybe you realize, you have an entrepreneurial gene. Like, you're not afraid to jump in, ambiguity, let's figure it out, let's right. solve it, as opposed to, wait a minute, how did the person before me do this? I'll do the same thing. Yes, and interestingly, I think in a way that's more my mom than my dad. Okay. Um, she, in the 80s, uh, sort of steered the family into real estate when everybody could make min money flipping houses and just taught herself to do that nice. and made a fair amount of money doing mm -hmm. it, too. So both of them, despite their conditioning and training, just were right. Right. Uh, uh, sort of had that yep. uh, impulse. That's yeah. awesome. Uh, so you, what, what do you think, you're, when you look back on, so you got the writing from the three-year stint you did before. I'm sure you got a lot of other skills, but... What, what do you think you draw up on now from your eight years of selling? I mean, that's a long time to be out there sales and marketing. Right. So, well, um, to fast forward to what I'm dealing with today, yeah. for example. Today, yeah. I went to a lunch. Uh, I'm, I'm running a very large nationwide, um, to, in my experience anyway, super ambitious research project, mm -hmm. which requires managing a distributed workforce across the states to go yeah. boots on the ground, Check. watch organizations study how they're dealing with robotics. But... 
care and feeding of that team requires funds, and mm. I have to raise those right. funds. Right. Uh, and for each site where we go to, we literally want to watch your workers dealing with these technologies. We want to interview you. We want to get data that you won't reveal to anybody else. Mm. Sales, mm. sales, mm. sales. Yep. And by the way, it's never done. Because right. if you say yes yesterday and today you say no, game over. Right. So it's a relationship management and con in three dimensions sales process. I'm trying to get funds. It's, it feels a lot like a startup. I mm -hmm. I, when I talk to anybody about it, I'm saying, well, we did our seed round. I got the first tranche of money that allows us to start the project. Right. Now I but need we a have suit to prove it. And I have to prove value. And I have to attract a diverse now set of investors yep. Yep. Uh, who, by the way, will never see a 10 or 1,000x return. Right. That's not what investing in research does, so right. I don't have that carrot anymore. Yeah, so you have to figure out what levers will work for them. Um, what is their return? What and I'm it? selling as much to them as I am to the person who is picking an item out of a bin and putting it into a box mm -hmm. eight mm -hmm. hours a day. Because mm -hmm. if they say no, we're done. Right, right. I, I love that you're saying that. I teach a class in sales, and um, when I talk to students about it, it's, it's not selling cars or whatever we used to think of people selling stuff. Every, almost every interaction that's meaningful has a sales component to it. If it doesn't, it has an influence and persuasion component to it. And so I focus that class on just being a good listener. How do you not necessarily how to jam a product on someone's throat they don't want. It's actually trying to determine what do they need. And, and, and am right. I the right person to help them or not? Yes. And by the way, I'm going to try to be that right person really yeah. hard. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. But, but, but you have the, 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 the ethical integrity to say, to know when you're not and say, you yep. know what, I'll come back to this person later, but right now I'm going to introduce him to someone who can help them immediately. That's uh, well, on my better days. That's what I do. The harder one for me is saying I'm sinking too many calories into yes. this one. Yes. I've got to fire them or yes. let them go. Yes. Um, I could still try. Firing I always customers. want to try for success, and sometimes it's not the responsible thing to do. Yep. Now, I manage sales team, and, and I, I would, it's always easier to tell someone else to do something that you wouldn't do. I had a really hard time letting go of prospects, but I would tell some of my sales folks, like, look, you're done. Like, if you don't have this thing closed by whatever this period, we got to move on. Having a boss really helps. Yeah. Nobody's that good. Right. You need somebody right. To, right. To, to give you some bounds to operate within. And it sounds like you had a really good mentor, too, like somebody that maybe he seemed chaotic and whatnot, but it sounds like he was willing to teach you as well and, and help, you, help you kind of solve these problems in you know, the, the ambiguity of, of, of a sales process of not knowing kind of what the next steps uh, are. At that firm, no. He had nothing to teach me about nothing. sales. No. Okay. Okay. I mean, um, the stuff he was teaching his clients about how to interact productively in groups and conversations, mm. that was very critical you blocking and tackling about, you know, that's facilitating a meeting is facilitating a sales conversation. Yep. It's not a yep. lot. So that was very useful. But when it came to... What's your marketing strategy, business mm. development strategy? How do you segment your market? Who are you going to prioritize? What's your sales funnel? None of this. He knew mm. nothing. Nice. He was an academic. Mm. So, again, I just went out and read books, got on tele, you know, right. tele-seminars and stuff right, back right, in the day. Right, webinars. Listen to CDs. <laughs> yeah, uh, right, in the car. Right, right. The stone tablets. Anyway. <laughs> the stone tablets. Let's take the first student's question. Sure. My question is, what kind of environmental differences have affected your work in regards to doing research in Massachusetts versus California? Right. Um, well, so uh, while I was doing my doctorate in, at MIT, I had a lot of access in the Northeast to advanced, I mean, there's various centers of excellence for advanced medical uh, robotics you know, around the U.S., but in the Northeast, there was a lot of that. And so I had choices between like studying manufacturing, studying the military, studying surgery. Um, and so that environment, when I was kind of knocking onto it, sort of doing cold calling to try to figure out what am I going to study, those doors opened 
faster and at higher levels where I could get better data, more access. Um, out here, uh, you know, the valley's not far. And we have a little valley right here. So there's more um, access to high-tech times AI times robotics outside of the medical space here. Things like manufacturing, but, you know, aerospace and so on. So that has affected things a little bit. Vandenberg is right up the road, so I've, I've talked to some folks there too. So within 50 miles does seem to matter a lot to me, at least for that, making that first good contact where somebody can say, sure, I'll get you access to that. And the weather's not bad either. No, yeah, <laughs> not at all. Um, I love Santa Barbara. In case especially you know. compared to Boston. Yes, and especially now. But we're not going to say when we're filming this because it's timeless. That's right. <laughs> so uh, you, you're in the business world um, about 11 years at this point. Um, you decide to go back to academia. Did you originally think you were going to get an MBA, or did you say, no. I'm going to get a PhD? So tell me how that went down. You're thinking, yeah. I'm, kind of, I'm kind of done with a sales and marketing gig. Why go back to school? Yeah, so it was a going to say somewhere in the neighborhood of 2006, 2007, I started to just read a lot of books that were being written around the time. Some are pretty wild and intense, like The Singularity is Near is a mm -hmm. good example, yeah, yeah, Ray Kurzweil, yeah. right? Yeah. And some more grounded. But all of, another one's uh, called Honest Signals by a guy named Sandy Pentland, who was using little sensors to measure a lot of things about how people interact and make scary, accurate predictions mm -hmm. about how we're going to end up getting on or not, or the result of a sales interaction. Mm. Um, at the same time, I was dealing with clients, and the BlackBerry was just sort of mm -hmm. hitting its peak. Yeah. And so I was watching executive teams. Really, it, that was really transforming how they were treating each other. I started to think and talk a lot about, around just walking around the house, about the implications of technology for my work. Mm -hmm. Maybe my job had a half-life. Like, I facilitated conversations uh, at a senior level, and there's technology arising even then that could help people take turns better in conversation. Mm -hmm. That's like 40% of my job. <laughs> um, and uh, so my wife, actually, at some point uh, basically said, look, you either need to shut up about this stuff or go back to school. <laughs> um, and she was founding her own business at the time. And oh, I wow. said, so this is a terrible time. I'm a principal in a firm, right. doing very well. Right. And she um, is an executive coach. She gave me one, and a former therapist. She looked me <laughs> in the eyes and said, so when's a better time? Right, right. And that was, you know, I decided to apply. Mm -hmm. uh, I wasn't, a, and I wasn't applying to MBA. No, I thought I, mm -hmm. I'm going to go back and try to do research that helps us understand what's about to happen. Right. Um, so you had PhD from the beginning of your from role. the beginning. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I got granted a master's as I went towards right, the PhD. Right. 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 Um, well, while you were there, you took a hiatus, as I mentioned in your introduction. Um, you became the number two employee, and you were the chief human robot interaction officer at Humatics. Um, I want to hear about that company. Um, I want to hear how you uh, raised $18 million of institutional capital. Uh, and then we'll kind of take us all the way through that arc of what led you to take that hiatus, you know, talk a little bit about that fundraising, and how did the, how did the story play out? Right. Yeah, so uh, I had a shot at uh, going to take an academic, academic job in about 2015. Mm. So I ended up leaving Sloan at about 2017. Um, and as I approached that, I started to do the thing that you're – trained to do towards the end of your PhD. You start to send out papers, make contacts, and I got interviews and a job offer and so on. Um, at the same time, David Mindell, the founder of Humatics, I, he had invited me to give a talk at his seminar because mm -hmm. he knew I was doing mm -hmm. something about robotic surgery. Yep. He was writing a book about robotics mm -hmm. at the time called Our Robots Ourselves. Uh, and we hit it off pretty quickly, and he said, are you sure you want to be an academic? Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and I wasn't. Oh, I you really weren't sure? No, I was oh, not sure. Um, because I've always sort of felt like being with builders, makers, people who are trying yep. to do stuff in the world, yep. making change was always really important to me. Right. Uh, and I didn't want to be someone, as you said in my intro, I didn't sat mean there. to be pejorative about it. But um, I didn't want to be, there are, pl there are many people for whom that's a fantastic right. way to right. be an academic. Yes. For me, if I wasn't rubbing elbows with real people, watching them. I felt like I had to sort of have the micro dirty jobs thing mixed in with my job. <laughs> right. Otherwise, I was going to feel like I was out of touch. Right. That's just me. Right. So um, I wasn't, sh you know, and helping to f get involved in a startup that looked like it could build a, a product and a service that could transform a huge swath of the economy. So tell us a bit about what, um, you were, what, what was your mission with the sensors? Well, so um, the basic idea is, in, you know, uh, uh, very, very accurate, high-frequency, inexpensive uh, GPS alternative that um, works in, say, at least originally, like a 30-meter cube. Right. Could give you hyper-precise location data. Outdoors, indoors, but indoors was real interesting right. because uh, you know, getting coordinates for where a robot is moving around a factory floor, right. you did that by telemetry and odometry, like measuring how many times that wheel spun, and then you hit a fiducial, and you measure that sticker, and you mm -hmm. turn left. You know, it was, mm -hmm. um, so one system that could integrate the location of people, fixtures, robots, stuff inside of a factory, right. that's like the nervous system of the next wave, you know, Industry 4.0, possibly. Is that what Amazon's doing now, essentially, uh, in their warehouses? Uh, not to my knowledge. Or some not form, with sensors some like this. Okay. But, uh, but I've been away from humatics for a while, so who knows. Got it. Um, and that application, I mean, we were talking to lots of potential applications, like motion capture for Hollywood, mm. right? If uh, you could put very cheap sensors all over someone, you could do motion capture outdoors, not mm. with a green screen. Mm. So the uh, potential applications were huge. My job was a bit of a generalist. Like uh, one of the co-founders referred to me as like this sort of general utility player. He was right. a baseball guy, and yeah. so he basically yeah. thought, I've used that I can put you wherever if we need. Right. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, it was customer discovery. Like, w where's the value prop? Right. Working up use cases, yeah, that kind of stuff. What's the vertical that we should go after? Right. And then helping to sell. Right. And selling, in that case, was selling to investors, right. like making presentations, making demo videos of our technology. Like, I put sensors on somebody's wrist to take data of them playing the piano. Mm. An expert versus a novice. Mm -hmm. What are the differences mm -hmm. in the data traces for that? Mm -hmm. Nobody had ever done that before. Mm -hmm. That was a super compelling demo. So that's the kind of so, thing that was my So job. were you pre-revenue when you raised that money? Oh, sure. So I've raised a decent amount of money in my lifetime, and I've been pitched a million times. Raising money in a pre-revenue company is extremely difficult. Yes. So how did you guys pull it off? Um, working harder than the next guy, gal. So you um, think you just did... Was um, it brute force, number of pitches? Well, or? so, I mean, look, in the beginning, because the technology had so many potential applications, it was very hard to converge mm. on mm. we're just going to... What's your we, vertical? Yeah. Right? And beachhead market and right, specific right, use right. case, by the way, and First what's customers. the... customers. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and how many cents per minute is that going to kick off? Right. You know, that, that kind of thing. Um, when you're developing a new kind of general purpose technology. So that was going on, and we were trying to raise capital, and we had no revenue. Mm. Um, David Mindell is a very well-known MIT aeronautics and astronautics professor. Mm. He had the engineering chops, and we had our first employee was a CTO, a guy named Greg Charvat, who was an absolute technical wunderkind mm. electrical systems engineer. Mm -hmm. I mean, just absolutely amazing. Um, so the minute you had contact, you realized there's real technical possibility, right. um, but it took preaching to the converted in the sure, beginning. Sure.
Yep. Well, that's quite an accomplishment but to raise that much money. What ended up happening with that company? It's still it's still oh, a going okay. concern. You yeah. were there a couple of years, is that right? Or? Yes. Uh, and so uh, I realized uh, the company. I mean, people say startups have one pivot. It, it wasn't. I, I don't think that's true in general right. uh, for us anyway. But there was a moment where the company started to go in a, a direction where. If you could rewind time, you wouldn't hire a guy like me to join that mm, new got it. company, yep. I think is a fair way to say it. Yep. And for me, anyway, um, I was starting, I was trying to finish my dissertation in, at Odark 100. Oh, wow. Okay. Right? Because I hadn't finished. I didn't realize you were still laboring at your PhD. Nope. Okay. And, and basically, you, you can sort of go on the job market before you finish writing the whole dissertation. Yep. But that needed to be written, and so it was before the sun came up. And I started to have yeah. more fun doing that. And getting more feedback from my, advi- you know, my um, dissertation committee saying, yep. this is so great, it's too bad. <laughs> uh, and I'm like, well, it's, I'm kind of having a lot of fun, actually. Right. So what do we do now? And, and that started that flywheel spinning. Uh, Did you and, talk to your therapist's wife? Uh, we talked a lot. Uh, we took a lot of walks. We I drank bet. a lot of wine. Um, and so basically, I, I made a couple calls just to say, it's going to be about a year and a half, but I'm coming back to academia. That's mm. where I belong. Mm. Uh, and the first person who actually picked up the phone was Paul Leonardi here oh, wow. at TMP. Nice. I knew Paul from before, mm-hmm. uh, and he said, yeah, we'll be hiring in about a year and a half, but if you can make a decision in two weeks, we have a postdoc <laughs> that you could start in September. So then I, my entire dissertation timeline shrunk down to two months and write that sucker, get it done, defend, and then wow. my wife and I packed up the car and drove out Nothing like a deadline, huh? I need them, badly. Wow. Well, most people do. Badly. So... So, um, Humatic started with a, 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 a talk you gave, right? Did you say that that was a talk you gave and the founder said, don't you want to be in? Ah, right, right. So I got the invite because, and I never actually gave the talk. He invited me oh, to come okay. give a talk in his class. It didn't work out. But you got to know him. Oh, we got to know each so other. The, so you also gave a talk out here in Santa Barbara during your time as an academic. So <laughs> yes. how did that, so the reason I'm highlighting these things is it's, it's just a good message to young people to like be a yes. Like say yes, even right. if it's inconvenient. Somebody asks you to do something, you never know. You're, you're going to sit in front of a couple hundred people or 20 people and talk, and give a talk, give a presentation. You never know who in that audience right. will impact your life. So what happened when you came out here? You talked with um, the InTouch folks, I think. Right. So I did a, uh, about a 14-month study of the implications of using their RP7 telepresence robot in an intensive care unit, post-surgical intensive care unit um, in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I had those findings, and I, I'd forgot, I forgot how I got in touch, but I basically reached out to InTouch, and um, they wrote me back. And I said, hey, I've got this study. In fact, it was through one of the docs at the site who was a big fan also. So he and I jointly emailed them nice. to let them know. And um, once we had the paper sort of, uh, I had a paper in press about that, um, I wrote back, and I said, hey, um, I've got this paper. You guys might be interested. And... Somebody emailed me back and said, just come out to our annual conference in Santa Barbara. Um, We'd love to have you give that in the sort of scientific advisory board panel talk or something Mm -hmm. uh, during that conference. And I thought, well, Santa Barbara is the place that everybody I know in California goes to on vacation. Yes. So I should probably do this. Um, (laughs) And my wife had work in Torrance, actually, that Mm. same weekend. Oh, And so we just figured, what the heck? And after 15 minutes on State Street, we went. Right. Um, if we could ever move Why here. Why wouldn't we live if here? If we could ever. Exactly. And then we let that go, though. Right. Right? Because right. that was eight years 
you know, but that nine seed years ago. gets planted, and so many so, people that live here. It was a wedding. It was some gathering. It made it. When I got that call from Paul, it made the the. He said you can have two weeks. It took us two hours. Like, <laughs> no problem. UCSB. Yeah. Um, it's funny. But so so when Matt and I first met. I have experience, uh, I was in a medical robotics company, et cetera, with a lot of the people from InTouch. That's right. It's, and then when I found that you had done all that extensive work with InTouch, it's sort of like instant kindred spirits here. Yeah. Um, but I love the fact that that talk from long ago had an impact on you, know, you sitting here right now today. Yeah, it wouldn't have happened. Yep, that's awesome. Let's take a couple more student questions. Okay. Hello. In your article, Learning to Work with Intelligent Machines, you mentioned methodological overload, which occurs when learners are expected to master both old and new right. methods. I'm wondering how um, we can avoid this result. Well, they end up learning neither because they're expect expected to learn both. I'm wondering how can we avoid this result in situations where it's important to n learn both so, methods? Yes. Um, uh, I really don't know. So what I do know, watching people who dealt with this problem in the wild with no help, those who succeeded, is that they started to specialize in one of the two way earlier than they were supposed to. So years in advance, they would start to try to get, this, is, this gets to your point of sort of being entrepreneurial, they would try to get exposure to one or the other, either uh, open surgery or robotic surgery, to use my example. And so that by the time they hit this point where they had to learn both in formal senses, where it was legitimate and appropriate and on time, they were already pretty good and fluent in one so that they could really lean on the other one. Doing both at the same time, I really do think is a recipe. Well, I can say, I don't think, I have data um, now across multiple studies. Those that are set up to who encounter two very different methods for doing ostensibly similar work and have to learn both with limited time availability will reliably fail to learn both well, or either well. Um, that's a pretty consistent pattern across like investment banking, policing, surgery, you know, the military now. Lots of different studies show that. So I, I, I don't know. It's an important question. And maybe there, you know, maybe somebody in the audience, maybe somebody hearing this has an idea, has some software, a solution. Um, I think the world needs it. So let me talk a little bit about your TED Talk. I'm curious, uh, TEDx is popular and, and not to besmirch TEDx talks, but they're a bit easier to, to land. How did you land a TED Talk? I mean, they're not that easy to get to get on your resume. Right, yes. Um, so uh, I had the article that, um, that HBR article that you asked about um, was based on the academic article. I, I knew it was going to go to press, um, and so once it was approved, um, the reaction I had gotten up to that point made me pretty confident that it was going to be an academic hit, so to speak, at least within sure. my disciplines. Yeah. Um, and more to the point, for surgeons and for other people who are trying to make their way in the world, there were some valuable lessons there about learning in the workplace. Yeah. And I felt an obligation to try to make noise about it. Nice. Um, and so I um, reached out to a few people that are mentors to me, some of whom are younger, actually. Um, and one of, whom, uh, one of them is a guy named Adam Grant, who's um, now very well-known organizational psychologist, given TED Talks that have lots and lots of views and so on, books, um, very uh, smart and kind individual. Um, and he, I had asked him for advice on applying to grad school in the first place. Mm. Uh, and so I took the same email that I saved in my inbox and seven and a half years later, replied again wow. to that email and wow. said, hey, Adam, I've got my PhD now, and I have this paper, and I think it's kind of going to be big. Can I have your advice on how to make appropriate noise about this mm -hmm. so that it 
is adds value to the right audiences. Right. We got we were on the phone. It took about a month to schedule it, and I said, so what should I do? And he said, hmm, give me a day. And he wrote me back, and he said, you know, I think I'm going to make an introduction. Nice. Uh, and so he made an introduction to one of the TED folks at TED headquarters, and we were on the phone for an hour and a half just talking about possible topics, and by the end of that, they said, this is good, we're going to green light this. Wow, that's fantastic. And that was it. I mean, a lot of good lessons, too, for younger people, the, the fact that you kept you kept that network alive even after all those years. I mean, never you, were, you had the wherewithal to remember. Yeah. Do not delete any email yeah. ever, 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 ever. And, and, <laughs> yeah. and I, like the, I like the ask. I mean, sometimes uh, younger people don't know how to ask for help in an appropriate way. Like they'll write a novella, and I'm yeah, like, yeah, dude, yeah. I can't, what are you saying, right? Yep. So just make it clear. And you had that string that he could refer back to, like, who's Matt? Oh, Iron, oh, Matt, I'm yeah, yeah, graduate yeah. school. It's perfect, right? So you had context, right. you kept it short, and it was, Fairly easy for him, right? All he had to do was make an introduction. And so, and to be fair, he taught me how to do this because he had just made a LinkedIn post like two weeks ago oh. about how to ask for advice from really? somebody you hadn't asked for advice from, which is ask for help on something very specific yes. that they clearly have expertise yes. in. Yes. And keep it tiny. Yes. Don't ask for a mentor. Ask for mentorship on a topic. Yes. And that's what I, so I was like, okay, Wonderful. I'll do what you ask. And I did it, and he responded. That's great. That's a great lesson for everyone uh, listening to this. Was there anything that surprised you about the, the, either the preparation for that TED Talk or maybe things that fell out of that TED Talk after it aired? Um, I think certainly in the prep, basically, the, the folks there at TED were absolutely fantastic at calling you on any mm. Ego, BS, oh, artifice. Um, basically, they said, look, this message needs to be truly valuable to this audience. You are not allowed to make this the Matt Bean show. Um, <laughs> you know, um, and... So, could you remember a specific example they were calling you out on? Like, what, what, would, what elicited that kind of response? Oh, I started in the, my first draft of my talk with a story about my childhood and uh, sitting on a rug reading a book about got robots, got right? It. This is like the me, 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 you know, like... Um, right. And they were like... No, that's a fail. That's a complete fail. Try again. Uh, right. Rewrite it so that you start with something that is not about you. Right. Like, I needed that kind of remedial level. Like, oh, yeah, why would I? That's a terrible thing to do. I'm an awful person. Why would I know? But so I, I tried to do literally everything they told me to do. I just did it. Right. Um, and it made it a much, I, I, I'm not deeply satisfied with it, but at least made it more. Um, about a message, a clear message that was needed. You know, I felt like, oh, this is why I do. It helped me reacquaint myself with like, oh, this stuff I'm doing matters. You know, right. yeah, right. And I don't. It's a and rare. You were chance. able to pull on that, all that teaching, right? All of that in the classroom, standing in front of folks and thinking on your feet. And... Yeah. Yes, I've always enjoyed that kind of activity. But you're right. I've had a school of hard knocks for yeah. sure. Yeah, and it's a performance teaching. If you're no doubt. good at it or if you care, it's a performance. That's right. Um, but it is a great talk. Even. Uh, I mentioned that in the introduction. Um, even if you just want to watch, like what is a like what makes up a good talk? Uh, Matt mentioned that anecdote at the beginning. You draw back on it, like a comedian has a bookend, right? So the, a callback or whatever. They'll they'll talk about something at the end that they talked about at the beginning, and all of that worked. Yeah, so. and they really they know that stuff. I didn't. You know, they really helped me. Uh, you know, I, I did what I could to take it forward, but right, right, they had a lot right. of Well, you were in the hands of pros, so yep. they, they helped you. Um, exactly. It's no surprise. And I've never seen myself on camera for five minutes that I don't pick it apart. Like, oh, God, why did I do that? Why did I sit like that? Why? So many ums and et cetera. Right. Your talk is good. Um, I wonder, I wonder um, so, so drawing a quote from that talk, I'd love to hear your, your feedback. You say at one point millions of us will hit a brick wall as we try to deal with AI. And you were talking in terms of the legacy learning that um, one of the students asked you about. 
Um, without sort of repeating that, I'm just curious, what, what do you mean by we're going to hit a brick wall? Is it that old learning the old way and the new way at the same time, or is it beyond that? Yeah, it's, it's multiple things at once, right. right? So if the way we handle these technologies is we're looking for efficiency and value from them, and one key way you do that is that if you've got someone who has a lot of skill or knowledge and that value that they can deliver, you use that tech to amplify or extend mm-hmm. that expertise, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just that we're doing that in a way that removes the necessity to rely on other people generally, but trainees in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, or people who could, maybe they're not formal trainees, but they're just around and they could learn. You know, you, a lot of things I learned... Um, you know, and I think the data shows a lot of the things you learn on the job isn't because I'm a junior mechanic and you're a senior mechanic. It's just because I'm in the workplace and you're in the workplace. Right. And you're a sales guy and I happen to watch you do something I think I want to know how to yeah, do that. Right? Right. So when those, it's not necessary, when, when it's, you get more value out of that expert by deploying these technologies, and a side effect of that is reducing the necessity of involving other people and trainees, mm-hmm. then the next wave of capability for the organization and for those individuals is going to be a lot steeper climb. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the brick wall I'm talking about. So a brick wall is a steep climb, basically. The people who can do it figure out ways to cheat. They figure out ways to weigh in advance, um, not, maybe not deliberately, but they sense, they sure. intuit, I've got to learn how to do this thing, and I'm yeah. going to figure out a way to do it. And you call that shadow learning. Right. Um, and so uh, that the, if you don't stumble into those tactics right now, you're right. going to hit that brick wall, and then you're, it's a lot harder than it used to be, I, I would wager. So is it, when you use the word deviance um, in that context, is it the shadow learning? You're deviating Precisely. from the way the organization is telling you to Yeah, and, and so this is a difference in terms of how that term is used in social science versus how it's used in the real, you know, right. in the real world. Right. And they're not that different, but in, so, in sociology in particular, it's... There's no value judgment on it, right? Um, uh, people always judge behavior to be appropriate or inappropriate. It's, um, and in sociology, basically, we think, so if you have a goal that everyone values or lots of people value and the legitimate means of going after that goal are blocked or really difficult, mm-hmm. a certain percentage of folks are just going to take an inappropriate means to get there. So in my case, it was learning, and that's deviance, right? Behavior that's just different from what everyone expects mm-hmm. as appropriate mm-hmm. and is encoded in rules and laws and so on. So in some cases, it's illegal, but most cases, it's just like, that's not appropriate. Right. Um, but a certain percentage of folks will do that if the legitimate way forward is sufficiently difficult. That's interesting because I, I like to think that because I'm steeped in the startup world and that's the world I've always lived in, there's a lot of deviant behavior in that world, yes. right? Because there's so much chaos. I mean, you go back to when you that's had to right. create that sales process from nothing. You couldn't, you, almost by definition, you had to be, quote, deviant because the non-deviant way would have, wouldn't have worked, right? Uh, for me personally, but I shouldn't have been hired, right? So if I'm right. being really candid... You should have hired somebody with sales experience. What is this guy doing? Right. I'm a kid off the street. Right, right. You know? So the legitimate way forward is to hire an MBA. Mm. And they have a and few... And have them put that process in place. Absolutely. They know what they're doing. Right. I didn't know what right. I was doing. Right. Um, so, but yes. And, and so there's some deviance that is more benign that most people would just judge to be a little weird or unconventional. Like, oh, I've never thought of doing it that way. Mm-hmm. That's very benign. Mm-hmm. And then there's much more dark deviance. I mean, uh, up until crime and so on, right. uh, there's a huge range in between. I, I tend not to be interested in crime. Right. I tend not to be interested in stuff that's benign. It's more like when everybody goes, stuff. oh, I know it works that way, oh, we're going to get in trouble someday. Mm, but right. not 
illegally, but just like it just shouldn't be like. Right. That. Well, there's hitting the wall, right? So it's, oftentimes we'll do things that are expeditious in the short term because we got to get the job done. But in the long term, we're failing. Maybe the people behind us, we're not training them adequately. Exactly. Let's take a couple more student questions. Do you think private individuals or companies such as Facebook should be allowed to freely experiment with AI? It re- I, I saw this question in advance. Uh, the key word there is freely. <laughs> what do you mean by freely? Um, say more. I guess just unregulated, not necessarily being supervised. Yeah, so I, I, th- uh, I think that it, uh, no regulation seems like a bad idea. That's not my area of expertise. Uh, so th- I think probably it serves the globe that there are places where there's very little regulation. And I would personally object uh, to that, and lots of us would. But that if for the, glo- the health of the global society, it's probably good that there's some of that. Um, and that in general, it's probably good that there's a fair amount of regulation. And then it's good that there's too much in some places. Um, because human, you know, as a society, as a globe, we all need to learn how to handle this stuff. And if people aren't coloring outside the line, so to speak, now, I don't mean to make light of it, because in either of those cases, you can have wildly inappropriate, unethical stuff going on. Um, but for us as a, an adaptive species, uh, it's probably somewhat good. Um, but again, you know, regulation is not an area that I specialize in, so I can't, uh, I can't speak to the science behind that and so on. So one thing you mentioned in, in your explanation of the presentation really resonates with me. That's the expert's dilemma. I mean, that's one of the words people put on it. An expert like Matt walks in and you say, you know, tell us a little bit about your field of research. I'm not saying you would do this, but some experts, you know. I'm sure I do it all the time. And it's hard for an expert sometimes to distill it down to what a layman can understand and and really cares about, right? Right. Because you know everything and you're trying to, like, put that in a funnel that, like, I love that analogy, which I'm going to use in the future. Symphony, one note. (laughs) What's your one note, right? I don't have time for symphony. Nobody wants to hear it. Uh, I love that. So I, I didn't give you a chance to talk about some of the other industries. Um, you mentioned like policing and some others. Do you have a, like an anecdote or a, an example of how outside of the robotic surgical realm, people right. have looked at your research and it's starting to influence the way work is performed or training and learning in the work environment? Uh, I, uh, so I don't have a big one yet in terms of like industry, although I, there are conferences actually. I should, I should take that back. There are conferences uh, and groups of people focused on learning and training in the workplace uh, sort of separate from the content, separate from the industry, right. right? So not learning and training how to weld, but like how does learning and training work in organizations and how can we facilitate that? Yes, some of that's technology, but other parts of it have to do with like humans learn things through rep- repetition over time and that involves some action and then some offline reflection. Feedback. Like the, the, yeah, and in the, there's a science of learning, right? So those folks, actually, I've had some contact with. Mm. And this notion that you have to learn through deviant means is, uh, is that's what made the paper publishable, actually. So I was publishing it in a place where the main readership cared about how does learning happen? What's our best understanding of how learning happens in an organization? Mm-hmm. And the reason that paper was publishable is that everything up and until then was you learn through approved means, uh, even though nobody had quite named that. Right. Um, and so for th- that audience there, th- that's been quite interesting. In industry, I'm more invited to give talks about the future of work that includes robotics. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yep. There's a conference um, in Munich not too long ago, and that was a bunch of uh, sort of executives from logistics and supply chain companies who were trying to think about the implications of robotics in the warehouse mm-hmm. and for moving boxes around yep. and yep. stuff like that. Yep. Um, 
that's less about this question of learning or deviance. Those, those kinds of things are just you know, in the background for them. Got it, okay. And I'm gonna ask you about the future work a little bit in a, in a few minutes. Um, we had an interesting sidebar conversation or through email um, about academics and solutions. And I'd just love to hear your thoughts on, you did two and a half years of field work. Obviously, that's a, that was important to you to have that hands-on interaction with operators and people in the field. Um, how, what, is, what is your point of view on, on, on actually tr putting solutions forth as an academic? And it sounds right. to me like it's something that is important to you. Yes, it is. And it's um, in the area that I specialize in, um, from within my own community, it's referred to as organization theory. But mm. basically, it's theory building. So you could think of it as, I do anyway, I think of it as like in physics, you have theoretical physicists mm. who build, help us build new models for understanding what's actually going on, yep. not going to try to manipulate or study or control uh, down to the engineering spectrum, right? Um, and so in the community of people who think about organizations, the people I tend to publish to and hang out with are trying to refresh our understanding of how do these things actually happen? How does learning happen? How does power show up in organizations? What about bias? Like, what is bias and yeah, how does right. it work? Those people, you have to really work really hard to contribute something new. And so it's really hard to have this dual specialization where right. I found this new thing called shadow learning and now I'm going to build a technology and commercialize a company that now helps to solve that problem. That's right. really hard. Right. It just takes a lot longer to do this kind of discovery work and then switch. Right. back to, but I hope to, yes. So this next project I'm doing in two and a half years from now, I'm hoping that we'll end up building some tech to help with the problems that we're discovering about right now. Right, I'm, and I love that. I'm, obviously, my bias is quite clear. Like, I'm, a, I'm, I'm an action-oriented entrepreneur that likes to try to solve problems or help people solve yes. problems. Um, so I like the fact that you're sort of in league with me in the sense of we, we're going to do all this good research in this, in, in this um, publication, pub, publishing the research so that it can be shared with the world. But we're also, we're not going to turn a blind eye to potential solutions that this research might suggest. Right. And to be clear, though, I think it is very good for the world that there's lots of people who only want to do the theory yes. thing. Yes. And the only want to do the building thing. Yes. And they yes. can shake each other's hands. And in fact, the people who build the stuff get all the money. <laughs> uh, but the people who like to build theory don't care because like me, philosophy undergrad was not about making money. Right. right. I just, that's my MO. Right. I want to understand the world. Yeah. I mean, we know your life story now. We know that there, that's not been a common theme of how do I make the most money. It's no. the, the way you came to philosophy and the travel and all those other things was, was self-edification. So, so we, you know, I know we don't want to talk a lot about solutions, but did, have you, when you think about the darker side, how, are there solutions that companies are, are, are um, teaching and hospitals are putting in place to try to level that playing field? Uh, not that I'm aware of yet. Okay, so, so it's still the aggressive, eager beaver is probably going to win the day there? Um, so it's been a few years since my study was over and I left the field. Okay. So things may have changed, although US News, World and, uh, US News and World Report just put out a piece saying robotic surgical training is the wild west of surgery. Um, wow. And they cited my research and they went and did a bunch of updating and interviewing people and they all kind of wow. said, yeah, it's kind of still the same. Um, so that's them. I didn't do that mm. ongoing work. Um, right. And to my knowledge, not just in surgery, but in many places, I don't know yet. I'm still trying to make noise about these findings. I'm less trying to find out, is there anybody building something that would, or trying to come up with new processes, mm -hmm. laws mm -hmm. that would right. make these things more effective. I just haven't paid as much attention there, so it wouldn't surprise me if it is going on. Right. There are communities working on it. I just don't, they, they certainly aren't getting a lot of attention. Well, I think things like your TED Talk, conversations like this that will reverberate, maybe some of that will come back to you. Some, somebody will reach out and say, hey, Matt, by the way, here's what we're doing. I'm on the web. Good. 
Let's take one more student question. Hey Matt, thanks for coming today. I've got a two-part question for you. Um, so firstly, what responsibility does the government have in controlling automation? And then following from that, what policies, if any, do you believe should be implemented? Right, so uh, the easy thing to say, as with uh, your question, is um, I'm not a policy expert. I don't specialize in law. So, um, And um, it's, I think, again, this is a, a little bit of a cop-out, but I think it's good for the human species that we have variation in the kinds of governments and kinds of laws about automation. So... Um, we as a species are learning a lot about how to handle that tech. In any particular location, there may be more or less of what you and I would call injustice or inappropriate outcomes, unacceptable, unethical stuff going on, or superb outcomes, but then the people in those locations may not agree with us, right? So the standard around what's local or what's uh, um, appropriate and effective and good law, um, if there is law, is at the end of the day in the hands of the locals who get to decide. Um, it's not us that gets to decide that the way automation is handled in China or in Germany is appropriate or effective. It's up to those folks. Um, we can still object. We can have a global conversation. But I don't think there's this one-size-fits-all answer on the policy front, for sure. Um, and I think, yeah, to take a step back, I think it is, that's how human, humanity sort of figured stuff out in general. We do different things in different places at the same time, and some of it works out better, some of it doesn't. And it's, some of it involves deep tragedy and wild success and joy, but we can't really control that. The human species just sort of advances, and we learn across these islands of experimentation. So I, I, don't, I don't know if it should be that way. I don't know if I want, to be it, it, want it to be that way, but I think that's how it works. I think that's a great answer. I, I, my eyes were opened years ago. There was a book, I think it was called The Travels of a T-Shirt in a Global Economy or yep. something like that. Um, uh, written by a woman from Georgetown, and she opened my eyes to the danger of a Westerner sort of overlaying their values on uh, you know, various countries. You mentioned a couple that um, you know were trying to they were trying to raise their standard of living. Now, what, who are we to say right. what they're doing is inappropriate? But and we can still say it, and we will. No, and we, we can, but but saying it and, and encouraging it's different from like really trying to levy certain restrictions right. or. Um, so I, I just have a couple more. You mentioned that you are asked to speak um, on the future of work. And so I think to this audience, it's an it's a emerging workforce. Some are still in school. Some watching this around the world are, are out there working. Um, what do you see as a general description of the robotics, AI, and the workforce? And how, specifically, if you're a Gen Z uh, per age, what should they be doing to get ready? Right. Um, that's, imp I mean, uh, I appreciate the question. It's also totally impossible to answer. No, no, no. It's just that if you're Gen Z, um, you're, I mean, there's such variation inside Gen Z. There's a lot of right, people who right. should be doing one thing and other people should be doing another thing. I, um, I, I'm kind of, I, I heard Elon Musk recently say that, you know, you should do what you think you can to make the world a better place. Mm. And for some person, that's going to mean being a massage therapist and and that's the most way for you to add the most value for the right amount of people. And for somebody else, it's you know, doing SpaceX or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and so figuring out what your thing is, that took me way too long. <laughs> way too long. You know, I mean, yeah, but you learned a lot on that. It might not have been a straight line, but you learned on that path. That's fine. I tend to hang out with a lot of people who have straight lines. Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I, and I think, actually, if somebody had nudged me in the right direction, maybe... 
earlier to like maybe you should go be an academic. Mm. I was called the little professor in my neighborhood oh, from when I was wow. five, right? Wow. So there were messages. There were the right. universe was kind of giving me a little background radiation, like maybe <laughs> um, I think actually that could have gone more straight, and still I would be this different kind of dude. Um, mm-hmm. But um, so figuring out what your thing is and not letting go of that question until you really feel like you've discovered it. And that takes incredible yeah, it hard can take work. Years. It can take years. It can uh, involve a lot of difficult emotions, encountering stuff from how you grew up and what you were taught life was about yeah. and what's valuable and useful to do in the world and rejecting some of that. Right. Um, right. Um, or deciding, actually, they were right, and I'm kind of the difficult one, so I'm just going to do what they told me. Right. 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 Um, I needed a little bit more of that. Well, don't sell yourself short. There's, I mean, a lot of times A to B isn't as valuable as A to A minus one plus two and to Z. Now, I'm, I'm not. We're just, sitting here. I I'm agree. I'm not just saying that. I mean, I think I there's know. a lot of, of value and texture to your background that maybe someone that had a bit more linear experience wouldn't wouldn't have. Fair enough. I want to ask you a slightly different question, um, and I know we don't do this, but please, please, um, it's not for self-aggrandizement. For um, uh, I, I would love to hear. And in just a couple sentences, if you were able to look back on your career at its conclusion, whenever that is, right. and hopefully it's many years from now, what would you want a researcher or an entrepreneur to sort of, how would you want them to evaluate your work? Not, not evaluate A, B, C, D, but just interpret your work. Right. Uh, he lived what he studied, I think, is a fair one. Right. So I study deviance and adaptation in work, right. and that's the life story you just described. Right. Um, so in a way, that's a limiting thing. But to me, it feels right. You know, like um, not everybody's like that. Right. Um, so yeah, one foot in the builder camp, one foot in the studier camp, one foot. You know, I've sort of jumped back and forth from multiple ways, multiple places, and it's always felt right for me to be a bit of an outsider or jumping between mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, being a good example of somebody who produces something of value in the world that they were bound to produce because that's who they were on the inside, that right. kind of feels like a cool right. story. I think that's success. He lived what he studied. I like that. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. So bootstrapping. You guys all know the classic business story. An entrepreneur comes up with an amazing idea, he pitches it to deep-pocketed investors, and he builds a billion-dollar company overnight. But not every successful business follows that path. Many well-known companies... Um, begin on their founder's own dime. As they grow, the founders sink internal cash into the business, um, and they grow it and grow it. I can count off the number of companies that have taken venture capital and been successful. I bet you all can, too. But can you so easily name some companies that have gone the bootstrap route? Here's a few that you may not know. GitHub. The four founders used their own savings to launch and bootstrapped for four years before taking on outside funding. GoPro. Nick Woodman used his personal savings and a loan from his mom to launch his company in 2002. He bootstrapped for 10 years before he took outside money. Spanx. Ladies, you all know that one? Unfortunately, I do. Sarah Blakely launched launched her company using all of her personal savings in 2010. She still owns 100% of the company and has taken no outside funding. Pretty amazing. So how about a company in town that has followed that independent path? for much longer. Pay Junction, we are a bootstrap story. 
Our founders met while studying computer science here at UCSB. Yep, three gauchos are our founders. Eric, Will, and Randy. They graduated in 2000 at the beginning of the dot-com bubble burst. Not exactly the best time to start a company. So they had a bootstrap. Credit cards, loans from mom and dad. They kept it going. So the key to our success was they pivoted. They started out originally as a company called presaleticketing.com. Just what it sounds like, ticketing for events. They had a swiper. They used uh, old technology back, well, it was old, new then, old now. Um, they used a Palm Pilot to accept payments. Do you, guys, do you guys even know what a Palm Pilot is? Nope. Anyway, it's pretty old technology now, but it was pretty radical back then. So they figured out how to um, set up a Palm Pilot to swipe credit cards and a driver's license. So that was their first venture. They then, once they started to get into the payment industry, they pivoted. They stopped doing pre-sale tickets for events and became a payment processor and changed the company's name to Pay Junction. They started out with a commission-based outside sales reps, 1099 reps, right? They weren't employees, kept their overhead down. They just paid them on commission, right? That helped their cash flow so they could keep investing into the company. They only had a payout when they sold something. So that's how they scaled the business. That's how they started to get cash flow into the business. So here's what they looked like over the years. In 2000, there were just three of them, the three gauchos, going it alone. In 2010, you can start seeing they started adding in departments. Their first hire after the three of them was a salesperson, which makes sense since they were building the product, they needed somebody to sell it. And you can see in 2015, more, 2020, we're at about 90 employees now. We'll probably be at about 120 by the end of the year. Within all of these departments are lots of little divisions. So there's quite a lot going on over there. So Pay Junction today, we're almost 100 employees, and we process $5 billion a year in transactions. That's a lot of pennies that comes into us. Swipe, a penny. So it's a very sustainable business. So where are we today? We're debt-free, we're profitable, and we've taken no investments. We've been in business in Santa Barbara for 20 years. And this allows us to focus on long-term relationships over short-term profits. That is part of our mission. We value long-term relationships over short-term profits. I'm not going to read them all out, but you can see where our hearts and our minds are at and what we've been following for 20 years. This year, we won a Glassdoor Best Place to Work. We're one of only three companies in Santa Barbara that won that. We're in the top 30 of small and medium-sized businesses in the entire country that won that. Why? Why do we win that? Because we have a great culture. So some of the things everybody does, dogs at work, on-site yoga, softball teams, it's all great. It all builds culture. We like to have fun. We're also very, very, very dedicated to work-life balance. People leave at 5 o'clock religiously. If they're still there, I chase them out. I don't want them there. Go home. Enjoy Santa Barbara. Enjoy your kids. Enjoy your dog. Enjoy your friends. So we live by what our mission statement says. So what are the takeaways if you want to start out and bootstrap your company? It's the team that matters. Be agile. Be ready to pivot your product if you have to for the marketplace. Put your customers first and your profits will follow and bootstrap as far as you can. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.